my own Africa story has just one where I feel like it completely reset how I view life and the meaning of it and what I value in friends and work. So it's changed my perspective on how short life is and what we should spend life doing. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Sarah founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Aaron. Really excited to have you on the show. We had a great time on the beach in Bali. Thanks to the Hustle Fun Camp. I just thought you had an amazing story and I would love to share that with the broader world. Aaron, could you please introduce yourself? Hey, Jeremy. So good to be on here. It feels like a bit of a dream come true. I still remember seeing you walk in at the Hustle Fun Camp and going like, oh my God, it's Jeremy. Quick intro. My name is Aaron. I'm from Singapore. I have been on a mission to live and work on all continents of the world for the last couple of decades. And I'm currently based in New York. I used to live in Kenya for a couple of years, used to live in Eastern Europe for a couple of years. And I have the pleasure of been venture investing in primarily fintech, but also a bunch of generalist funds, but focused on emerging markets this whole time. Awesome. So how did you get into tech in the first place? This is a story of my dad getting me my first computer when I was about think eight and started sort of wondering what we can do with this. Command prompt was like really cool. And was always curious, I guess, but never really started building anything like on tech until it's like in high school. One of the first things I built was sort of a movie sharing site, which now that in reflection was might not have been like a hundred percent like above board. And then I think in Singapore, while I was actually at Standard Chartered, I built a um, rideshare app as well, which was trying to introduce motorcycle ride sharing to a country of people that really didn't like the heat. So that did less well. We scaled out to Myanmar and Cambodia. So I've, I've always been interested in building technology, but I think my parents always felt that a job that didn't involve a three-piece suit and cufflinks wasn't a real job. So I guess after graduation, ended up in finance and began that career in, in Europe and then sort of spent a couple of years in Singapore as well and then took that career to Kenya. So yeah, always wanted to be here uh, and great. I found a way to meld my sort of geekiness and getting to build stuff with a suit sometime. With LPs. And what's interesting is there's not just tech and not just emerging markets, but you're doing venture capital. So how did you get into this career per se? It was completely by accident. And I have nothing my friends to be grateful for for that. So I was actually with Standard Chartered leading the digital bank strategy for them in Africa. So across eight markets. And it was that point when I saw so much more innovation and cool things happening outside the bank than inside the bank. There's still cool things happening in the bank, all respect. I love the green and blue, but so much more cool things happening outside the bank. And I, I think I had a couple of friends who were based in Hong Kong who were running venture funds as well. My good friend, David Lynch, who was the CTO of DBS in Hong Kong at the time, was working with 
a venture fund called Nest to run an accelerator and basically said, you should pitch them on the idea of Africa. So I came to Hong Kong twice, climbed the peak three times and basically started raising a fund for Africa with the thesis of investing in companies on the continent to take across to Asia as their next market because we saw very similar demographics, rapidly urbanizing populations, very mobile first, young population, but still primarily agrarian. So yeah, completely by accident. And I always thought that I would be back building a business or even back in corporate, no. I'll be back building a business in two or three years, but 10 years in venture, I'm still here. And I guess it's been a really cool ride. It's just really fun to work with founders and learn about new things all the time across new regions. So I think I'm getting pretty addicted to it. Amazing. And what's interesting is that you know, what we see is we see a lot of Southeast Asian diaspora, obviously, and they're either kind of working in Southeast Asia in terms of venture capital or tech, or classically they studied in the US and to some extent UK, to some extent Europe, and then they live, work there. So we see a lot of Vietnamese, for example, in France, because they studied there, they work there, and then they go into tech and because of the engineering background or the experiences. And it's interesting because you're going and really spending a lot of time working in Africa and other emerging markets. So could you share a little bit more about how that passion came about? I think even when I was in, in college, I was pretty left-wing and, and joined a bunch of organizations that were very much focused on social justice, very much looking at how can economics or how can business models or social enterprise sort of lift up economies and peoples. And so I think when I started looking into microfinance and I started looking into new form lending models, I started getting a lot more curious about these markets. And it seemed a lot more meaningful than trying to roll out a new home loan product in Singapore. Mm. I'm sure that's fine too, but it just seemed a lot more meaningful. And I love understanding things in a different context, that idea of same but different. And you know, the more I looked into what was being built in Africa and what was being built in Latin America, a lot of it was inventing things from the ground up. Right. Like whether that's new money transfer systems or new addressing systems or new identity systems. It's like the chance to almost build humanity from scratch. I'm not saying it's mm. a, as extreme as we have to move to Mars and have to rebuild everything, but mm. like too similar. And I think it's just fun. It's intellectually very satisfying, but also just meaningful. If if you're able to offer access to some of these services to some of these populations that are tremendously under it makes a world of a difference to large sorts of people in their daily lives. So I think the meaning of it was as much a driver as like the intellectual spark of it. Let's double click into what that means to be a world of difference for somebody to have access. Because it's one of those classic social enterprise, nonprofit, access to water, access to, you know. So, but yeah. what does it mean in this context in terms of technology, in terms of fintech, in terms of, can you share some examples of what you've been looking at? Yeah, sure. So, so like, I, I think when I was first doing a scan of all the cool things I wanted to invest in in Kenya, the one that like really stands out to mind is a company called OKR. High, which was built by a few ex-Googlers that had moved to moved to Kenya. And basically their mission was simple. It was to offer addresses to the unaddressed, right? I think there's something that you and I in the modern world take for granted in that everyone has 220 Smith Street, Unit 2. But what if you don't have that? What if your default address and sort of sense of home is across two rivers, come across the big tree, take a right, you know, if you've hit the cow farm, you've gone too far, right? I think that makes it very difficult to be included. So their mission was simply to give addresses to everyone that doesn't have an address. And you might think of it as a pure like social mission because it's really like, oh, that's a nice thing for people to have. But it's also like an economic empowerment tool where with an address, suddenly you have access to financial services. Suddenly you have access to a bank account. Suddenly your employer can kind of KYC you. 
suddenly you have access to a whole bunch more services because you have an address. And I think that was just like such a really cool example of something that I really wanted to get behind. And it was a good sort of melding pot of something that was really impactful, but then also had like dramatic potential. If you were the single source of addresses for every bank account opening, like in East Africa, in West Africa, you're really winning. It's a tremendously profitable business. So I think being able to find that mix of something that was highly impactful, but also highly scalable and highly profitable was cool. Yeah. And what's interesting is that it feels like there's a pragmatic aspect about it, which is that addresses requires some level of mapping, logistics, government collaboration, so, so forth. So what are some of the operator gritty details of building such a company, for example, in Africa? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, you know, your listeners keep up with all this out there. And it's, it's sort of this narrative of mobile internet is going to transform Africa. And it has in many ways. But I think some of the challenges are that most of that connectivity is really centered around the cities. Once you get a little bit further out, connectivity really drops. So you've really got to build something that can cater for sort of low data bandwidth environments. I think that's certainly one thing which a lot of engineers and product leaders and other parts of the world aren't yet so familiar with. I think there's also this other idea of identity, even internet identities being sort of phone number first versus email address first. So when I think I was launching like a few apps in Kenya, it didn't occur to me that you could have a Facebook account with a phone number, but no email address. So when we try to pull the email address as your unique identifier, which is obvious to most people in the world, everyone has an email address, but there are lots of people that are on WhatsApp are on all these other services that don't have an email address. So I think the sort of being able to reset your design paradigm is really important. And I think speaking about design paradigm, that is something that like I've always found really curiously different between Africa and Latin America in that I've really seen Latin America benefit a lot from that sort of cultural proximity to the US in that sort of e-commerce paradigms and digital banking paradigms was a lot easier for mass populations to understand and adopt and engage with. But I think because of a bit of a dissonance between Africa and the US, I guess it's not, they're not physically as close. It is harder to educate and to get people thinking about, oh, I could order things this way, or I could get my things delivered this way, or I can access finance this way. I think design choices and really understanding a user that's coming from a very different and has different sort of interaction by the technology is important. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of emerging markets have that have like first exposure. So for example, in Southeast Asia, I think the past few years have seen the first wave of wealth tech. So the concept of managing wealth, personal wealth from whatever scale, right? From private assets to public markets. But I think there's something that's starting to percolate out of Singapore and you see the rise of those robot advisors in Vietnam, in the Philippines, and so forth. So there's a lot of customer education that's going on. From your yeah. perspective, what do you see as some of the necessary attributes because I think you've seen a lot of startups die in the customer education phase sure. and some companies seem to make it work. I selfishly, like most of the time, I usually will invest in the second or third follower, especially in emerging markets, especially if they're trying to introduce like a new way of doing something. And, and that's partly because a few reasons, but one of which is unlike Singapore, where you can imagine sort of a credit bureau is already built, payment systems are already built, KYC systems are already built. Very often, if you're a first mover, say in e-commerce in Kenya, I remember Jumia had to build their own logistic systems, their own payment system, the whole like spectrum of it. And so... There's a lot of upfront capital expenditure beyond the software and beyond the core product that you have to invest in if you are first mover into a new way of doing something. As a second mover, first mover already has spun up all these other services. You can very easily plug in and the customer base has already been identified. So certainly I, I do feel that like 
But move advantage is very hard to capitalize on. I think the other interesting challenge sometimes we see in, in Africa and some other emerging markets is this idea that there are a lot of dominant corporations and telcos especially that have a reputation, deservedly or not, of sort of replicating whatever a startup does and undercut on price or engage government to change regulations in a certain way to make sure that they win out of that. That I think is also a constant challenge that entrepreneurs mm. that are first to market with a product face as well. I think case in point for me was I'm really good friends with the guys who launched the equivalent of Lipana and Pesa. So payment through M-Pesa mobile money at a store versus peer-to-peer. -peer. It's a company called Coco Coco, and they were gaining so much traction, right? They were launching in petrol stations, like in supermarkets and like all the above and were really skyrocketing. And I guess one day the dominant telco decided this should be our business and then went right. straight to all these large local corporate brand names and went, you should be working with us. We'll charge you less. We'll offer superior product and you're just dead. It's really difficult to navigate some of these environments sometimes. So I have all the respect for anyone trying to bring anything to life like in Africa. I think the common startup analogy is building a company is something like building a plane as you jump off a cliff, right? I think in Africa, you're doing that while blindfolded with your hands tied behind your back. It's just so difficult. So there's nothing but admiration and yeah, empathy for folk that are trying to build out there. And that's why I think I really go out of my way. And I think a lot of investors in Africa go out their way to make sure their founders are properly back because it's already such a harsh look. Yeah, I think that's common, right? I mean, for example, in Vietnam, there was a class of startups in the wealth tech space that had their licenses pinged, right? And we call it regulatory actions and so forth. But that's on one side. And of course, across Southeast Asia, there's a lot of like payment transfers, money transfers. And I think a lot of governments have been inspired by Singapore that this should be a national system and that doesn't need to be a toll keeper. And so for some markets where there's no local player effectively, then obviously there's a huge upgrade. And then, for example, Vietnam, there are some dominant payment rails that were corporate and startup oriented. And yeah, it was getting slowly evaporated by adding government decision, which I think is fair in some ways, but also it's a risk for founders to be thoughtful about. It absolutely is a risk for founders. I think it's a risk for like venture investors as well. Yeah. So like, I, I think the more famous recent story was in, in Lagos, in Nigeria, one day they decided that they were going to ban motorcycle taxis in the city, at least the ones that were app-based. And so suddenly three companies just had no business. They had to quickly pivot toward being primarily parcel delivery and hopefully tied it over. And I think, again, as venture investors, you get this phone call from your LPs going, is this going to happen to all the markets? So I think a lot of my LPs sort of go like, why are you so calm about it on? Like, it's bound to happen. It's factored into the model. We know that there's a 20% chance they'll shut this business down. But this company operates in three, four other markets for that just reason. They're not going to shut down four markets simultaneously. So there's a way to manage that risk. But for folk that I guess that are more used to more predictable and predictable regulatory environments, it is sort of a really tough thing to get their heads around. Yeah. You know, I think it's interesting because you use the word markets, right? Multiple markets. And I think for most people, they have a pretty spotty mental map of Africa. And so when you say markets, are you looking at it in terms of like cities, suburbs and neighborhoods, countries, regions? How should we be thinking about Africa as a single market, I guess? Uh, Sure. Well, continents, but how should we think about the market breakout? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of your suggestions around looking at it as individual cities is probably the most apt 
markets, right? So I think Lagos in Nigeria and West Africa is probably like one of the most thriving. But I think sometimes people prefer to sell the idea of the overall country of Nigeria mm. in terms of population size, total GDP. Mm. But I think if you, and that's great from a TAM perspective, but if you look at who you can actually service and who is actually buying your digital payments and who is actually using your e-commerce facilities, like that's all in one city. Right. So I think the city-led approach is probably the one that I'm certainly most of a fan of. Maybe giving there's like a quick sort of tour around the, the continent. I think in East Africa, Nairobi really has always been leading the way, whether that's because of M-Pesa, mobile money. It's also home to like the largest UN headquarters outside of New York. So there's usually a lot of like international activity there. Lots of pan-Africa companies are domiciled there. So again, very similar to the Singapore for with Asia story. So it benefits a lot from that. I think obviously in Southern Africa, South Africa between Johannesburg and Cape Town, they're two very strong ecosystems. Again, slightly different in their own sort of ways. But in West Africa, you've got Lagos, you've got Accra, which is sort of next door, which many people describe as the calmer Lagos, but it's also a much smaller market. We've seen a lot of founders launch in Accra to sort of pilot. And then once that pilot's been proven out, then launch into Lagos with sort of their seed or pre-series A sort of war chest. The car, so Francophone Africa is a region that we're very excited about as well, because it's many ways like the single biggest sub-region, which shares the same regulators, the same currency. So Dakar and Abidjan are both thriving cities, deep connections to Europe. I think you look at North Africa, I think a lot of funds treat North Africa as a completely separate sub-region as well, because if you look at culture, links, stage of development of the cities, it's also like way up there. So you've got sort of Casablanca and Morocco, you've got Cairo, which is soaked up, I think like five to 30% of all funding that has gone into Africa. So Cairo is a really thriving city. So I think the city-led approach to me is the one that makes the most sense because then you're really designing for that environment. But I guess it depends on which sector you're building for, right? So if you're building in agri-tech, then of course you want to look beyond the cities because that's where your customer base is. But for most companies, especially FinTech built, I, I feel like the city letter probably makes more sense. Let's talk about headlines because every time I open up the news, I think there's only three stories I read about Africa. So the first, of course, is that the Africa, the population growth is fast. China demographic is just starting to slow down. India is starting to slow down as well. So by 2100, Africa will be huge, a large continent, lots of people, large temp. I think there's one story. The second story is very much, oh, there's crisis, there's political chaos, there's a rebellion, there's a coup. So, you know, this is the kind of news that we see. And then the third thing is some sort of like a lot of human interest stories. So it's like this one family in Africa that is going through this experience, whether it's positive or negative. So those seem to be the three sort of headlines that comes to mind on the news about New York Times or Wall Street Journal or The Economist. So I'm just curious, what do you think is your story? How would you describe like the pragmatic side of what you're seeing in Africa? By the way, I think like the first two observations and the first two kinds of stories are very intricately linked. If you think about the population boom, sure, that is super exciting. It is going to be the workforce of the world for the next decades to come. That so much is guaranteed. And I think beyond the number of people, just the energy and the hunger for success is just unprecedented. And I know like Chinese people and people from South Asian subcontinent have a reputation for working really hard and striving. But I, I think I've seen it happen in Nigeria and Kenya where people like really hard to be successful. So I think that hunger among the youth to make it work is such a powerful force. If you look at Nigerian diaspora and Silicon Valley in London, they're leading a lot of companies and really making ways. So that part to me is really exciting. A lot of them have also begun to engage with the internet economy for the first time. 
whether as creators or as developers, you've got sort of that unicorn in Andela that was looking to create developer workforce in Africa for the world. So I really believe that all these efforts will lead towards an economically prosperous nation. But towards the second narrative that you have, it also presents tremendous risk because if the youth in Africa are not able to find the jobs and fulfillment and meaning that they need, then obviously they're going to turn towards leaders. Obviously, they're going to turn towards maybe less savory sort of day-to-day tasks. And that's a major risk. If we get job creation in Africa wrong, the world will pay the price. When we look at migrants getting on boats to try and cross the Mediterranean, when we look at African migrants trying to get through Mexico to even get up to the US, like this all has a root cause. And that root cause is domestic economic prosperity. And I, for one, whether foolishly or not, believe that the key to unlocking that is in its own talent, its own entrepreneurial talent. So I invest in a lot of companies that try and help SMEs become stronger, more robust, try and help them gain access to more finance. Because I think Africa needs to create sort of jobs for itself, not just as a profitable enterprise, but as necessity for the world to continue to be stable. So I, I think those narratives that you mentioned make a lot of sense to me. I think my own Africa story has just one where I feel like it completely reset how I view life and the meaning of it and what I value in friends and what I value in work. And it sort of allowed me that, right? I feel you would empathize that sitting in Singapore, you're meant to value a certain set of things, whether that's a great apartment or stature in your career, cover of Straits Times, like whatever that is. But I think time in Kenya really helped reset that for me and it's been really great. It's also been really trying because obviously I had to live through a few terror attacks which hit home very hard. Actually, I lost one of my best friends in a terror attack a couple of years ago and yesterday was actually the anniversary of that. And so... It's kind of changed my perspective on how short life is and what we should spend life doing. Can you share a little bit more details about where and why this terror attack happened? Yeah, sure. It's tough because I feel partly responsible for it. But it happened at the sort of Ducid Hotel, which was, if you're familiar with Africa, there are a lot of these compounds, like a hotel plus office complex. And there were a bunch of gunmen. I think they came to be from Al-Shabaab. We had come in and they took over for days. Suddenly, there was one evening where we heard that it had happened and we were all desperately trying to check who was there, who was not there, who's still there. And why it hit home for me beyond my friend was that I had a co-working space that was there too. So I had people that were employees that were also there and they had barricaded themselves in that space. They were frantically texting and it's tough. They don't teach you how to deal with this. I, I certainly didn't feel emotionally equipped to understand how to deal with this. So a night passed and basically we were trying to ring every hospital to figure out where he was, where our friends were. And yeah, eventually they did find his body and he actually went out in the first wave. So he went out in a blast. So at least we know it was slightly painless is what I guess the doctors told us. But it's tough. And I was scheduled to fly out for another engagement 24 hours later. And that was a very somber ride to the airport for sure. And to be honest, I, I left not being sure if I would want to come back. But I think back to my earlier point around stability and employment and economic prosperity being a driver for radicalism, unless we're there to try and solve it, this will persist. So yeah, his passing was also the catalyst for me starting a small micro VC with a few of his friends and myself, because it was always his dream. And his name is Jason Spindler. It was always his dream to start a fund with all of us. And so the least we could do was give it a shot. So mm. we're glad like we brought that.
to life as well. And that was nice. But yeah, it's not without its own tragedy. And I can't even begin to describe my family and my friends' reactions to it back in Singapore as well. It just felt very out of this world for them. Because you read it on the news and it always seems two or three levels apart from your own life. And it's different when it's people who are super close to you. Wow, that's super heavy. And I appreciate you sharing that. Well, I mean, the first thing I had to respond is that you can't be responsible for that. I mean, he was working at a co-working space and the responsibilities on criminals and the folks who decided to carry out an attack. I mean, you know, so... Sure, you but know, you can't fight that feeling in your mind. But like, you know, if right. we weren't friends, if I had invited him to come work at the space, maybe he would be around. But then we wouldn't have been friends. And then that would have been also sad. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a crazy story. I think that's something that's on the minds of many folks because personal safety is one of the benefits of working in the US, say in Europe, in Singapore, <laughs> people want to stay there. And so personal safety and risk is a big part for people's minds. And honestly, it deters a lot of folks from working in emerging markets. How do you think people should be thoughtful about that dynamic? I think, yeah, I, I think, and this is going to be a horrible generalization, but I think by and large, most Singaporeans I speak to about opportunities in Africa probably overestimate the risk by a factor of about 10x, purely because of the stories that they hear. I think media is very good at overtelling certain aspects of it. So I'd really just say that come spend some time, speak to more people that have lived there or have built businesses there or have spent time there. See it for yourself, experience it for yourself, and things will get better. When I was in Kenya, I, I made sure that every year we brought a few interns from SMU or from Singapore Poly just to experience a few months because they'll go back and they'll tell their friends. And suddenly, because you're someone that spent time there, it's significantly more de-risked. I also remember when I first landed in Kenya, I was maybe one of Singaporeans that were there. We all knew each other. We had the same WhatsApp group. It was a great close community. We always wondered why there weren't more. So I, I will say that it's risk reward, right? I, I think Nairobi is obviously a lot safer than a few of the other surrounding sort of countries too. So pick it. I remembered when Santa Chartered had first offered to send me to Africa, it was Lagos first. And I remember HR sending a whole bunch of different apartment prices, but there were no photos of the bedroom. There were all photos of the fences and the generator and the water supply. It's like, oh my God. But it just goes to show what the focus is. So, you know, I think it's just focusing on things that could go wrong, but I think much better to spend your heart and your mind on things that will go right. Like what happens if my experience becomes very positive? It's kind of, you manage your own risk, right? I'd say things like if you were first time on the continent, please don't land straight into Mogadishu. I think that's a bad idea. Don't do that. Mm. Land to Nairobi, please. You know, get people to go around with you. Yeah. Before we turn to the next chapter, Hmm? what is the name of that micro VC fund and perhaps a website where people could reach out if they want to chip in? Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's called Sherpa Ventures and the website is Sherpa.Africa. Awesome. So on the next chapter, what I want to ask you is, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Besides that one. I I think to me, when I reflect on being brave, it's been about recognizing that there are things that I can't control and the things that I, I can. For me, when I talked about leaving for the airport that day, not coming back, I think the first time landing back into Africa after that happened, that to me was probably one of my bravest moments in the last few years, I'd say. Being able to come to grips with you're taking a personal risk. Your family has to understand that you're taking that risk because it's not just your right to take that risk, right? Like everyone else mm. around you takes that together with you. And having that real conversation with them going like, I understand that you think this risk is unnecessary, but I need to tell you about why it's important to me. So 
I think there's two layers to it. The first is taking that step to come back. And the second is making sure that the people around me were comfortable with that as well. And fighting harder than ever to make sure that Africa got the right capital, talent, support, and attention that it needs to, to thrive. Yeah. And making that a mission. So I'd say that would be the story. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that obviously you mentioned about checking in with your family and loved ones. And I know that you recently became a dad. So mm-hmm. I'm just kind of curious about perhaps has becoming a parent changed how you look at mission and impact? Because I know it has for me. I'm just kind of curious for you how it has shifted. I think the most beautiful thing about becoming a parent is that it shifts your timeline out significantly out into the future. I I think prior to Daniel coming into our lives, I thought in two, three decades ahead. Now I am more comfortable thinking a century. What is the world we want to create for him? What are the products that should exist in his time? What technologies will exist in his time? And what governance will exist around the technologies at the time, right? So it's certainly helped me ruthlessly prioritize the work I engage in, the founders I decide to spend time with, and the team's that I decide to surround myself with and work with as well. And just focuses your attention on what is the world you want to create in 50 to 100 years. Yeah, 50 years, 100 years time, right? And it's for him. It's not really for me anymore. And so, yeah, it's definitely changed that risk appetite. I'm looking forward to how my travel schedule is now that he's in our lives and needing to spend more time home. But yeah, being able to reflect on what kind of world you want to create for him in 100 years, probably the biggest change. When you think about the next 100 years, what do you think is for sure going to happen and what do you think is not sure what's going to happen? I think Africa's significance when it comes to impact in the global economy will be felt. And I use the word impact because I don't, I think the jury's still out as to whether it's positive or negative. But there's such incredible momentum towards making it positive that we hope. In terms of what I'm not sure about is in 100 years, I'm not sure that sort of liberal democracy that has led the way this whole time is going to be the predominant model of government like in the world or the most respected form of government in the world. Mm. That, and that, that part like really worries me because I think we take that for granted in our lives that, of course, there's a general trend towards more democratic rule, the general trend towards more, I guess, socialist governments. But that's not necessarily how history might pan out. And that is probably something that I'm watching really closely. And I think that interplays a lot with economic prosperity as well. I think when you have economies where the youth do not see a way out, you end up in situations with bad leaders. Bad leaders only self-perpetuate. And when you have entire sub-regions of bad leaders going for decades, you put the world at risk. So that's probably the bit that I'm less sure about. But I'm 100% sure that Africa have a major impact on the world economy in one way, shape, or form. Either from a talent perspective or from an idea generation perspective, from a clean energy perspective, right? There's just so much happening on the continent. That's crazy. I have to also kind of, oh, one my, my angel portfolio also is very heavily geared towards sustainability and climate these days. And so recently I invested in a company in Kenya that's doing direct air carbon capture. And I believe that because of Kenya's unique geology, sitting on that volcanic fault with near limitless geothermal energy, if done right, they could suck so much carbon out of the air, completely renewable energy based, and create a thriving economy doing that, right? We have the opportunity to get it right. And that makes me very hopeful. That makes me very hopeful. And I hope that, you know, more investors and more individuals start looking into these opportunities as well. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by summarizing the three big takeaways I got from this. First of all, thank you so much for sharing about how you got into fintech, venture capital, 
and emerging markets, especially Africa. I thought it was just fascinating to hear about those individual career decisions that you made, but also I think some of the personal benefits and mission and parameters that you were thinking about in order to make that leap. Secondly, thank you so much for sharing about Africa as a market. I thought it was fascinating to look at it in terms of the discussion about whether it's a city versus region versus country versus continent level. So I thought it was interesting to see the trade-offs in terms of total addressable market. I also mentioned about connectivity, political stability, as well as market opportunity and local market competition. So it's interesting to see also some of the similar dynamics in emerging markets, for example, with government regulation changes, as well as local telcos competing or Sherlocking or competing with local startups. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about your personal experiences. I really appreciated how much you shared about your friendship with your coworker who unfortunately passed away in that terrorist attack. I think it's a sobering reflection about the fact that emerging markets, there is risk in each market, but there's also a strong sense of purpose and mission that goes behind investing and bring capital. I thought it was very special that you shared about why you're doing it, which is for the next 100 years, about investing in a future where there are strong leaders, strong institutions, strong talent, and strong economies to give people a better future. On that note, thank you so much for sharing your story, Aaron. Thank you, Jeremy, for the chance. I've listened to you almost every other day on my ride to Connecticut, and it's been a dream to get the chat. So thank you for sharing my story. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.